Verse 21. You must not desire another man or covet, as some translations say, another man's wife, nor should you crave his house, his field, his male or female servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything else he owns. Now, once again, this kind of speaks to all the other commandments. The covet one is the one that really pierces you. Because the covenant one, this is the one that Jesus is dealing with. See, the Pharisees taught like, well, as long as you don't kill anybody, that's okay. As long as you don't have an affair with another woman, that's okay. As long as you don't steal things materialistically, that's okay. Where Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said, not just murder, but don't have anger. You've heard it said, don't have an affair, but don't even have lust. And the idea is that he's unpacking the 10th commandment. Because the 10th commandment deals with the heart and the motivation. The 10th commandment says, yeah, you never stole that bicycle, but in your heart you were desiring it wrongly and always wanted to take it. And the only reason you stopped because of your image or whatever, but in your heart you're still desiring something that doesn't belong to you. You're still desiring that friend or that spouse in a way that you shouldn't. And so ultimately the 10th commandment deals with the heart. And it basically is saying, if the heart is not right with God and you're coveting these things, you're thinking of all the things you would like to say to them, but you don't have the courage to do it in real life. Or you're thinking about all the things that you would like to buy and have and your life would only be better if you had it, but you know you don't have the money for it. Or then you're basically corrupting your heart. And eventually, if your heart's corrupt, these things will happen. These things will happen. You can, you can only have a dead, cold, corrupt heart for so long before it eventually begins to come, become actions. And so this is the way I deal with a lot of times with my students. is like, yeah, but I'm not really doing it. And it's like, yeah, but you're young enough that you've been able to control yourself. But if you dwell in those thoughts for enough years, eventually thoughts will become actions. And that's the reality. That's what covet is dealing with. Because ultimately, this isn't just about action. This is about your heart. And that's what God is mostly interested in what he's dealing with. And so he basically says, you're not allowed to desire anything in a wrong way. This doesn't mean you're not allowed to have desire at all. Because God gave you desire. But it means, once again, going back to the idolatry, it's the disordered love. It's that when you're desiring these things for your own selfish purposes, because you believe that it will make your life better because you're not trusting in God. And so I desire for your life to be ended because I believe it's going to make my life better, but I'm not trusting God to deal with this anger in my heart or the fact that maybe you deserve to die, but that's God's deal. Or I desire that I want to look good in front of everybody, so I'm going to gossip to everybody, and everybody's going to think, wow, he really has the latest news on everybody. I'm going to go to them, and I look really good. But what ultimately I'm doing is I'm desiring something else other than God to make myself look good and have a strength in the community that's affecting other people. And so ultimately the question becomes is, am I going to God to meet all these needs, or am I trying to meet them on my own? And if my heart is about me, then I've automatically violated the other commands. And that's the real test. The real test is, do I really truly trust God enough 
that I'm going to go to him. I'm going to allow him to fulfill whatever's lacking in my life that makes me want to have anger or murder or theft or adultery or false testimony or whatever. And I'm going to go to him and he's going to fill me up that I'm going to no longer have that desire. And even though that situation may not fix, I still don't have enough money to get the things that I want. That person who really might deserve to die is still alive. Whatever it is, do I trust God that he will either change my heart and I'll be okay with that, or that he will work in the circumstances of my life and change those things? And that's the reality. The ultimate reality is if God is the source of all my covenant life and blessing, then I have to trust that he'll either change my heart or he'll change the circumstances around me. But it's not up to me on which one gets changed or how it gets changed. It's up to him. And covet ultimately deals with the idea that you're not content and you're not satisfied. Therefore, you want something more because you haven't found your contentment and satisfaction in God. The reality is, if you're not content with God, before you get married, you're not going to be happy in marriage. If you're not content with God, with your small little apartment, you're not going to be happy when you have the big house on Polaris. If you're not content with God and the crappy job that you have at McDonald's while you're trying to get through college, then you're not going to be happy when you are that CEO of the, the big company one day. And the idea is that getting more disrupting the community is not really going to end your coveting. Only being in the covenant with God and satisfied and content with Him is really going to satisfy you. If you can't get that right, then your heart is going to be corrupt. And this is what God is mostly dealing with. And this is why He says, I am the source of things. And even with David, when David goes out, and he takes Bathsheba and rapes her and kills the husband to cover it up and all make it happen. God says, I gave you so much. Was this not enough for you? If it wasn't enough for me, you, if you would have come to me, I would have given you more. Now, I doubt that means more wives, but because David already had a couple hundred of those already before Bathsheba, and God forbid that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which we'll get to later. But what God was saying is, whatever it is in you, David, that is lacking, whatever it is that you have and feel like you don't have enough, if you would have come to me, I would have satisfied you. I would have given you what you really needed, what you really needed. And that's what God is saying, that if we want then we go to God. And God will always give us exactly what I, we want well, or need, meaning that he'll change our hearts or change our circumstances. And I'll say, this is why it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, my favorite thing is when people like Joel Oldstein and Benny Hill and or, uh, Benny Hinn, sorry, and all these guys, Benny Hill was the British comedian. Yeah. Benny Hinn, who is the comedian but doesn't try to be a comedian. All these false prosperity gospel people, they come in there like, God will give you the desires of your heart. And they quote Psalms. And it's like, yeah, but you missed that first part. 
delight yourself in Yahweh, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. And the implication is if you're delighting yourself in God, if you're filling yourself up in him, he's going to make you content. He's going to satisfy you. And then what will happen is he will give you everything that your heart wants. Because if you're truly satisfied and content in him, then your heart has become conformed to his heart. And now what you want is what God wants. And he'll give that to you because that's what he wants you to have and that's what you want. And the idea is that the only way you can get whatever you want is if you conform yourself to the image of God and therefore you're wanting what he wants. And this is why Jesus says, I don't want to die, but not my will, but... And because he delighted in Yahweh, what Yahweh wanted him to do, die ends up becoming what Christ wants to do. Now, he didn't start off that way. But he didn't go out and run away from the cross. He went into the garden, and he began to delight himself in Yahweh in prayer. And then God changed his heart, and Christ got exactly what he wanted, the love of the world by dying on the cross. And that's what we need to understand, is that this is what that final 10th commandment is dealing with. Is dealing with, if you get that first one right, that Yahweh is your highest priority, your highest love, your highest worship, then he will satisfy you through transformation of your land or transformation of your heart. And then you will have no desire to covet anymore. Because the only thing you will be coveting is more of Yahweh. And that's okay. And that's what the Ten Commandments are mostly interested with. Get God right, and then the love of God will begin to flow through you into other people's lives, and then you won't have those desires that you have. The problem is, in America, it's hard. America fuels the covenant. Everywhere you turn, it makes you feel like if you're not like the Joneses, and who in the world are the Joneses? then you're not going to be truly where you need to be or satisfied. I mean, I hear parents talk about, like, if I don't get my kid into the right preschool, they're doomed for life. It's like, what? All the studies actually show that you shouldn't be even thinking that way for the health and the sake of the kid. They should actually not be learning to read or all that kind of stuff until much later. I just got this thing in the mail that says, do you want your three-year-old to be set up for life? We'll teach your three-year-old speed reading. It's like, what the heck? All the studies, all the research show that it shouldn't be happening until like six or seven years old, really. They're reading and that kind of stuff. Um, Not in an intense way, at least. I mean, if it happens naturally, that's okay. But that sitting down and making them do it. But it's that covenant. It's that I want more. I'm not satisfied. And that's hard to deal with in America. Those are the Ten Commandments. God initially gave them an exodus in a deep theological kind of way. Now he's repeating them once again as they go into the land. Because things are going to drastically change. Because they're going from the wilderness to San Francisco, so to speak. And the wilderness, it was kind of easy. There really wasn't a whole lot to covet. There wasn't a lot of these temptations to worship other gods because they they couldn't see them anywhere. It was just sand and rocks. 
But God is kind of re-emphasizing these now because now they're going into Las Vegas, so to speak. And they're going to be bombarded with idols everywhere, other options to go to for the source of light. And the land is going to start producing a little bit more freely on its own. and They're not going to need God as much as they needed to. And so they're going to be very tempted to go to their own devices. And that's what he's going to deal with later is he's going to later unpack the idea that and this is what you should do when you are in the wilderness. Do not let your heart become bitter and angry. But then he says, now when you go into land and you're going to inherit crops and fields and houses that you did not build, then here's the warning to that as well. God understands that there's a very danger to being poor and having nothing. But God also understands that there's a danger to having everything and surrounded with abundance. Both can lead you astray. And the wilderness was the poverty. Now they're going into the abundance and the wealth. And there's going to become a warning with that as well. And so these are the Ten Commandments. Verses 22 through 33 act as a conclusion to the Ten Commandments. It's where God kind of brings us all together and wraps it all up. So the remainder of chapter 5 is the conclusion. Verse 22. Yahweh said these things to your entire assembly at the mountain from the middle of the fire, the cloud and the darkness with a loud voice, And that was all that he said. And then he inscribed these words on two stone tablets and gave them to me. So he reminds them that you've already received these Ten Commandments. God himself. Now remember, way back in Exodus, we always had this image through cartoons or the Charlton Heston, Cecil DeMille Ten Commandments movie that Moses goes up on the mountain, God speaks the Ten Commandments to Moses, and Moses brings the Ten Tablets down and discovers them worshiping the golden calf. Remember, that's not the way it worked. In the book of Exodus, God comes down on the mountain, and he verbally speaks the Ten Commandments to the people. The people heard the Ten Commandments from the very mouth of Yahweh himself. And then when they heard them, they said, yes, we will do all these things. Little did they know what they were really agreeing to. Then Moses went up on the mountain and had them carved up and came down and discovered the golden calf worship. So before the golden calf, before the ten stones, they heard the actual voice of God speaking this to the entire nation from the fire, the smoke, and the cloud on top of the mountain. And Exodus, so that whole chapter 19, or verse chapter 20 in Exodus, that's God speaking it directly to the people. And so this is what Moses is reminding them. You heard this. And maybe some of you were not born yet, but you're standing next to somebody who did verbally hear it. And they can testify to that. And then he gave them to me and wrote them in stone. And then when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze, all your tribal leaders and the elders approached me. And you said, Yahweh our God has shown us his great glory, and we have heard him speak from the middle of the fire. It is now clear to us that God can speak to human beings and they can keep on living. So this is made clear to them as scary and as almighty as God is, and as a booming, righteous voice that he had they realize that God can speak. You can actually hear the voice of God and live. That's huge. 
Because the pagan gods, you can't. And even then, Yahweh is still so holy that most people think they're going to die. Yet God in his compassion allows them to live. Verse 24, you said that Yahweh our God has shown us his great glory, and we have heard him speak from the middle of the mountain. It's clear to us that we can hear him speak and beings and live. But now, why should we die? Because this intense fire will consume us. If we keep hearing the voice of Yahweh our God, we will die. Who is there from the entire human race who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the middle of the fire as we have and have lived? You, Moses, go near so that you can hear everything that Yahweh our God is saying, and then you can tell us whatever he has says to you. Then we will pay attention and do it. And when Yahweh heard you speaking to me, he said to me, I have heard what these people have said to you, and they have spoken well. Now there's a weird thing here is because they say, it is so clear that you can hear the voice of God and not die. But we're afraid that we're going to die now after we heard the voice of God. So we don't want to hear the voice of God anymore. Moses, you have God speak to you, and then you will speak to us. Now what's interesting is they admit that you can't hear the voice of God and live, but then they contradict that in the next thing. Then they appoint Moses to be the guy who hears the voice of God and bring it to them, even though he's a human. Now remember in Exodus, Deuteronomy says God spoke well. God said they spoke well, meaning that God agrees that there is some truth to what they're saying. But in Exodus, God kind of makes it clear that they are pushing God away, that God gave them the incredible privilege of hearing his voice and physically coming to the presence. And they're the ones that responded by saying, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. I'm going to have a relationship God now with God through somebody else. They're the ones that put Moses between them and God as a mediator. Not that they would always have heard God speak to them like they did on the mountain all the time, but they made it clear from their heart that they pushed away. And this is why God, sorry, Moses in Exodus chapter 20 um, says, Do not fear, but fear Yahweh. And remember, we talked about that as he's saying, Do not be afraid of God as in that he's an untrustworthy God who's just here to kill you. But you are to be afraid of God in the sense that he is something to be respected. He is something, he is terrible. He is unsafe. He is mighty. But if you're desiring God and loving him, you have nothing to fear physically from him. And that's what they did. They pushed him away. Verse 29, if only it would have really be their desire to fear me and obey all my commandments in the future so that it may go well with them and their descendants forever. And so God replies and says, if only their true desire was to really, truly fear me and obey me. Instead, they're afraid of me. And remember, the difference is the fearing God is not knowing his character and thinking that he's just here to kill me. So fearing God is basically, oh my gosh, his voice is so mighty, this fire is so horrible. He's, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Or they go into the wilderness and they have no bread and they have no water and they say, God just brought us out here to kill us. What kind of a God is this? It's a not trusting God. It's not knowing the character of God. It's suspecting God the character of God. That's fear.
fearing God, being afraid of Him. And that's what God is commanding them against. Because over and over again, He's saying, I'm the God that rescued you. I'm the God that brought you out of slavery. I'm the God that brought you all this kind of stuff. If I really wanted to kill you, I would have done it a long time ago. My character is a character of love. My character is a character of sacrifice. But the fear of the Lord is knowing his character is good, knowing he's not here just to torment me like the pagan gods, knowing that I'm not just some pawn on the chessboard, but it's protecting me from going too extreme in Jesus is my best buddy kind of a thing, where I lose the idea that he still is God. And with just the mere voice, he can shape the universe in any kind of way that he wants. And there is a certain extent where I do fear what he's capable of, that if I do disobey him, I know that he will punish me, and that I am held to a highest standard, and there are serious judgments for disobeying him and going against him. And so basically, fearing God is not healthy because you don't have a relationship with him. You, tr- you, you mistrust his character. But the fear of the Lord protects you from getting so buddy-buddy with him that you lose your respect for him. You lose your awe for him. You lose the fact that he is the God of the universe. And he is good, but he's not safe. And once you stop seeing him as safe, then you just start becoming relaxed. And you're like, oh, he'll forgive me anyways. Or it's okay, we're best buds. And you lose that desire to obey him. And so one, fearing God leads to an obedience out of fear and no relationship. But not having the fear of the Lord leads to license. And you just, everything is just willy-nilly and you don't think he's going to do anything to you. Now here's the thing. The Jews went way too extreme in fearing God. They pushed him away. You couldn't even call him father. You couldn't call him this. And they had no real relationship with him. Not every Jew, but as a whole. But today in America, we've gone way too far into that license. Oh, Jesus is my friend, and we're best buddies, and all this kind of stuff. And we've lost the idea of, but he is the God of the universe. And I should fall on my knees before him. And that's the tension. The tension is to not be afraid of him, but also have this fear and respect. At the the same time, it's like, yeah, I do want to obey him, but there's a big part of me who wants to do what I want, but I'm not going to do what I want because I'm scared to death of him. But at the same time, I'm not so scared to death of him that I'm questioning his character that I do understand that he is a good God. He's just not a safe God. And that's why I think C.S. Lewis put it well. Probably the best definition ever is like, and I mentioned this many times because it's one of the best definitions ever I've heard. When Lucy's like, Aslan's a lion? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, heck no, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so this is what God is calling them to. Verse 30. So go and tell them, Yahweh's speaking, return to your tents. But as for you, remain here, speaking to Moses, so that I can declare to you all the commandments, statutes, and ordinances that you are to teach them, so that they can carry them out in the land I am about to give them. Be careful, therefore, to do exactly what Yahweh your God has commanded you. Do not turn right or left, walk just as he has commanded you to do, 
that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you are going to possess. And that's the main line. Here is the Ten Commandments. They are very broad. We've narrowed them down a lot in our list on the wall. But the Ten Commandments are very broad. And we're going to see how broad they are when we get to chapters 12 through 26. I mean, when God starts talking about do not, have a, do not commit adultery, he's going to talk about not mixing fabrics of clothing. So these commands are way broader than what we, we've really typically seen them as. But God says, here's the Ten Commandments. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to love. Don't veer off the path one way or the other. Because if you stay on the path of what God says you should do, then it will go well for you and you will live long in the land. So ultimately what God is offering them is life. Life. Physical life, spiritual life, as well as contentment and satisfaction. And this is the word that's going to be used as shalom. And remember, shalom is peace. But it's not world peace. It's not peace. It's peace as may you be content and satisfied spiritually, physically, mentally, socially and be right with creation, right with God, and right with humans. And when a Jew says shalom, they mean, I pray that you have peace, contentment, and satisfaction in every area of your life so that you are truly content and satisfied and you want nothing. And the relationship that you have with other people is good. It's exactly what it should be. And it brings life between the two of you. And the, the relationship you have with the creation, the earth, and animals is good. And you're giving to the land. The land is giving back to you in a right, balanced relationship. And that the relationship you have with God is good. And that's what the word shalom, that's what the word life in the land means. Any questions, comments? You know, so often it talks about obey my commandments, my statutes, my testimonies, my ordinances. Is there a difference between all these things? They're all pretty synonymous. Statues, ordinances. There's lots of people who have done word studies. There's some very legalistic people who try to make a distinction, but it falls through. But especially when you get into Psalms, David just starts throwing all these words out. And the idea is that the Hebrews were very poetic. We're very, like, literal, precise. So when we see this word and that word, we want to say, oh, there's a difference, because if he really meant that word, he would have used that word. So there has to be a difference. That's the American Westerner in us. We're all about defining things and dissecting things and systematically putting everything in its place. That's why it's like systematic theology kind of always falls short, because they're like, okay, God is this. And they go, this verse, this verse, this verse. And you're like, yeah. But there's so many things about who God is that are not, there's no verse for it. That's just a character. But the, the, the Hebrews, they're poetic. And for them, it's about an idea. It's about poetry. And so it's what's called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous is when you use this different words to communicate the same idea. And so they'll actually like say a sentence and then say the exact same sentence again, but with different words. Because for them, it's like, so you got this one student over here struggling with your concept, and you give them a football example, and they're like, oh, yeah, that totally clicks. 
But you come over here and you give us somebody else like a movie example, and it's like, oh, that clicks. And and then the Hebrews understood that, and they understood that just saying the same things all the time is repetitious and boring. And they also realized that just dissecting everything all the time misses the beauty and the art and the poetry of life. That life is not just about science. Because science can answer a lot of questions of how things work, but science can't answer the question of why are we here and what is our meaning and purpose. And so you can dissect vocab words all you want, and that will tell you exactly how they work, but it won't give you the meaning and the music and the purpose and the beauty of life. And the Hebrews were so much more into the beauty, the meaning, and the purpose of life. And so a lot of these words, they're not dissecting them and this word means something and this word means something different. They're just using all these different words to create this robust, multidimensional image of what the law really truly is.